0: Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. As our usual, we'll have a look at uh, Harvard Business Review and uh, a couple of little tips there that will help grow our business. Also talking with Christina Sikiotis, uh, looking at the, uh, some of the convention things that she learned from overseas, particularly making your innovation training work. But right now we're going to... Tra- uh, pop over to Markey Insurance and have a chat with David Young. Good afternoon, David.
1: Yep. Hi, Julian. How are you? I'm very
0: well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, great, thanks. Well, um, we've recently recovered from a, a tragic storm where a lot of people lost uh, uh, many things, uh, and many businesses, I believe, uh, had challenges with uh, business interruption. So uh, we want to talk a bit about business interruption insurance. What, what is business interruption insurance?
1: That's right. I mean, there's been a lot of claims in the Hunter and a lot of businesses did suffer loss of turnovers. There are a lot of business interruption claims uh, being dealt with at the moment. But essentially it's business interruption or loss of profits is often referred to as BI insurance. And many businesses who don't have BI cover you know, often never reopen or fail within a couple of years after serious loss or damage. Uh, business insurance becomes the, the engine to assist driving the business, really. It's designed to put the business back in the same financial position it would have been before the loss. Um, importantly, the trigger for a claim is damage to property uh, caused by an insurance insured peril, so that could be fire, earthquake or a storm. Um, a lot of the policies do extend the cover in a number of areas, um, such as loss or damage to public utilities, as was the case with um, electricity situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be customers and suppliers' premises, or prevention of access, um, and even murder and suicide. Mm. Um, so covers do vary quite a bit, and the insureds need to check their cover to make sure it suits them.
0: Is there a time period of how long uh, an insurance will pay, an insurer will pay?
1: Yeah, yeah, there is. The claim generally starts from the date of the loss, and it'll extend to when the business's turnover and profit levels are back to normal, um, or where they should have been before the loss. Um, often this can go on beyond the reopening time if they've lost. Customers and they still have a downturn, downturn in their turnover. Uh, the period of cover is limited to what we call the indemnity period, uh, which is chosen by the insured. Uh, and when the cover's taken out, it's recorded in months. Uh, Twelve months is an, an average minimum period.
0: So, so how long should the indemnity period be?
1: Yeah, well, it does depend on the type and the size of the business. Twelve months uh, is the minimum recommended period. Um, But if you own a building, we'd suggest a minimum of 18 months uh, or even longer if it's a larger building. Uh, The reason being, after a loss, often the first six months or so are consumed with investigations as to the cause of the damage. Uh, Can the building be repaired or should it be demolished? Um, There's involvement from architects, engineers, there's compliance issues with the council, environmental, other government departments. And then, of course, you've got the tender process and, and the time it takes to actually demolish and, and rebuild the property.
0: So, so how does the business know how much to insure for?
1: Yeah, interesting point, Julian. Um, all business interruption policies will have variations to the definitions, but um, generally the sum insured is the gross trading profit. Uh, there are weekly-based turnover policies. Uh, where insurers will offer a weekly sum insured, uh, but again, it's usually based on their gross profit percentage. Uh, in simple terms, it's the gross turnover less their purchases will give you a gross trading profit figure. Um, this figure can be varied a little bit with opening and closing stock. Uh, trends in the business, uh, if they're anticipating you know, growth of 10%, um, payroll can be partially insured and that can save premium. Uh, or There's certain expenses they may not want to insure, such as freight or gaming tax if you're a club or a hotel. Uh, but it's vital to get some insured right because there is an under-insurance clause and it's usually at about 80%. So if you're insured for less than this amount, the insurer will reduce your, your amount of claim.
0: Now, you've just mentioned uh, payroll insurance. Can you explain the payroll insurance?
1: Yeah. yeah again, there, there are variations available. But generally, the payroll definition not only just includes wages and salaries, it includes all the on-costs, such as the, the SGL super... Workers comp premiums, fringe benefits tax, payroll tax, etc. Usually adds about 20%, uh, sometimes more to the, the core salary uh, component. Um, gross profit will include 100% of the payroll, uh, and in most cases, you know, we recommend that 100% of payroll is best because it, it allows the staff to be paid and retained, as it's often too expensive finding new employees, rehiring, retraining people, etc. Um, however, as mentioned, I mean, uh, businesses with a large payroll, um, they may elect to insure partially. Uh, they might, for example, insure 100% of their payroll for the first three or six months. So it gives them that time they don't have to think about anything All their staff will be paid. Uh, and then they may just elect to insure, say, 30% of their payroll for a six- or 12-month period beyond that, which is for management and key staff. Now, mm-hmm. uh, this is sort of common in the hospitality industry.
0: Okay, so say a fire occurs, what what happens next?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully the client's got business interruption cover. Uh, The insurer will appoint a loss assessor and he'll coordinate the claim. Uh, Past trading figures will be used as a basis of the claim uh, for the period of the business affected. Uh, If a business can relocate temporarily or permanently, that'll be considered. Uh, Or if they're able to operate from other premises they occupy, um, the aim is to reduce the loss of turnover of the business and, and assist the business maintain its customer base. Uh, this might involve employee overtime, hiring equipment in, uh, where possible, contracting out parts of the business, or to maintain that productivity. Uh, it's important also that um, clients have got adequate sum insured for claims preparation costs if we need to get accountants etc. involved. Twenty thousand should be the minimum amount taken there. Some large businesses have. 200000 or more. Um, and any extra cost for the purpose of maintaining turnover, the insurance company will usually meet that expense.
0: So, so we've mentioned recently the, the storms that we've had and obviously mm-hmm. there's been quite a few uh, claims for business interruption. W- what was, were some of the common issues?
1: Yeah. You know, as mentioned, the key is having property damage, uh, which is a trigger for a business interruption claim. Uh, if you have damage and the trade is affected, you can claim from day one. Um, What's happened with the latest storm, a lot of clients didn't have any damage, and if that was the case and they were only affected by a power outage, most policies will have a 48-hour excess or wait period before you can make a claim. Uh, Either way, the insured needs to provide trading figures to verify the loss. Uh, Obviously, insurance companies won't just take their word for it. Um, The amount claimed is a loss of gross profit, not loss of turnover, Uh, and sometimes there are some expenses that that do stop and cease, and they're called savings. It could be phones, cleaning expenses, and even electricity, for want of a better uh, term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Many businesses with no damage did tell staff to stay home, mainly for safety reasons. Uh, Unfortunately, this doesn't constitute a claim. The claim would only be considered if there was genuine prevention of access to the business due to surrounding damage. For example, in the CBD area during the pasha Balka storm or even the 1989 earthquake, there was genuine prevention of access to a business.
0: So I suppose in hindsight now, are there things a business can do to be prepared if, if they have a loss?
1: Yeah. yeah well, as I mentioned, obviously having the business interruption policy is important. Uh, getting your sum insured right with a long enough indemnity period. Um, often your insurance provide. you know, you could offer your insurance provider a copy of your profit and loss um, statement to get checked to make sure you've got right some insured. Um, it's important also to have a disaster recovery plan, uh, no matter how basic it is, just details of your employee contacts, customer contacts, supplier contacts, uh, protection of your, your systems and your and your internet, intellectual property. Uh, I think just thinking about what you could or would do if you suffered a total loss to your property just to keep your business going.
0: All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, David. Um, we'll have a chat with you again another time. All right. Pleasure.
1: Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye.
0: David Young there from Markey Insurance. Yes, business in, interruption in policy. Very important things to have, and I'm sure many businesses are thinking about that right now. And you're listening to Business, The Law & You on 2NURFM 103.7. It's twenty-four minutes past one. Time to pop over to Christina Sakarias for our minute on innovation. Good afternoon, Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm good. I nearly lost my voice then.
2: Oh, God, I did. I noticed that.
0: <laughs> um, you can have all the talking then if you like. But <laughs> no, we're going to talk <laughs> oh, about you. <laughs> uh, making your innovation training work for you. Ah oh, yes, and
2: it's been uh, a problem for a long time, really. I was. I had the pleasure um, last night of, of having a, uh, a conversation with um, the Edward Bryant Ford Professor of Business Administration um, at Harvard Business School. Her name is uh, Teresa Amabile, and she has been researching intrinsic and extrinsic motivation um, in the workplace and other areas for 35 years. So she's quite a quite a knowledgeable um, professor in this department, and we, we were talking about workshops and. Um, workshops around creativity and innovation and how, what, what the effect is of them on individuals and then how that transfers back into the workplace. And she has had conversations. She had over 238 people fill in diaries. Some of them had been to workshops. This diary filling had gone on for quite some time. There were 12,000 entries that she used in her research. Um, and a lot of the conversation that she had had with people was around problem solving. Uh, and, and the repeated question was, when they go to workshops, the common lament at the end of it was how hard it was to put into practice what you had learnt at the workshop mm. when you got back into your workplace. Um, and the whole idea around it is, that, again, it's a no-brainer. The individual has changed. The individual has learnt a lot. The individual has been affected by what they've seen at the workshop, what they've learnt, what they've participated in, the conversations and everything that they've had. Back at the workplace, nothing's changed. Mm. It's like when you, when you, um, you go on a trip or you go on holidays and you, you, you might only be gone for, you know, two weeks, but when you come back, you expect so much to have changed. changed. And yet nothing has.
0: Yeah. And two days and is back to normal.
2: The yeah, that's right. So within this thing, um, people will go to a workshop and they'll feel affected and they'll feel that things have changed for them. But when they get back into the workplace, nothing's changed. So what we discussed, um, on the phone was actually potentially setting up um, things that might create that change before you go to the workshop or as soon as you come back so that there is an expectation for change within the workplace. Mm. So it, it's only a slight twist on things, but um, we actually did this once in a, um, in, a, in a workshop that we ran quite some time ago. We instigated four changes within the workplace before the workshop took place, uh, and, and it was amazing that 18 months later things were still moving um, along as per the workshop had had, had gone on, you know. So she, she was really onto something and she triggered some um, thoughts uh, and patterns in me when we had that conversation about what potentially we could do to improve things. Mm. But the, the whole, it's the, if there's just some small modest changes within the organisation, that money that you've spent on training somebody to go to a conference, go to a workshop, whatever, can come back at you tenfold just from a few small changes.
0: And, and that's the case of most training, isn't it? People go away on training and it's all exciting while they're there, but when they get back to the workplace, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about creativity or management styles or whatever, it, nothing changes when you get back.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And it's no surprise then also that small business owners um, that go to these workshops are the ones that instigate the best changes yeah. and are the ones that take away and start putting into practice some of the things they've learnt. Do, so the larger organisations are not so capable of that flexibility and the, and the agility, but the smaller organisations can.
0: Do you think uh, creativity and problem-solving can be taught or do you think it's sometimes it's a natural ap- aptitude?
2: Um, it's a bit of both. So yeah. there are people that are that are more confident to do it but it is definitely something, they've proven it in, all... in lots of research, something that can be learned, adapted. Look, most of us, we're all born creative. Yeah. The whole thing is we have that knocked out of us that's not going yeah. on to an education state. <laughs> well, but, apparent, we, you know, we have it knocked out of us.
0: Apparently, the schools are supposed to be changing to help people be more problem-solving, more fo- problem-focused, which is good.
2: We live in hope. You know, that's fantastic if that's the direction we're changing. I haven't seen any evidence of it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing the evidence.
0: Great. Well, we'll have a chat with you again next week. In fact, we'll have a longer chat with you as we talk about uh, some of those case studies that you observed over at the conference.
2: Love to. Can't wait to talk to you next week.
0: Thank you. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.
2: Have a great week. Bye.
0: Bye. Christine Psychiatis there with some thoughts on... uh, maximising your training, uh, which is uh, certainly something needed sometimes. Well, we've got time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. First one is know when it's time to kill a project. Zombie projects are the ones that fail to fulfil their promises and yet keep shuffling along, sucking up resources. They happen because shutting a project down can be very emotional and people often struggle to acknowledge when something just doesn't work. To make people view the process more rationally, create clear and simple guidelines for when to continue or kill a project. Consider these questions. Is there really a market need? Can we fulfil the need better than competitors? Can we meet our financial objectives? If it's still hard to make a final decision, bring in objective outsiders such as someone from a different division or even outside the company to weigh in. You can also help people accept a project's conclusion by emphasising what was learned along the way. Hold action after reviews to capture a les- lessons learned and create a database to store and share them. So Sometimes those projects do go on a little bit too long, don't they? And this one here, be more productive between meetings. A busy schedule of meetings often means we have 30-minute gaps scattered throughout the day. We don't usually pay attention to them. We either run out to grab a coffee or answer a few emails, but they can have real uh, toll on our productivity. Four 30-minute gaps in our schedule can add up to 25% of our day, so it pays to think differently about these underused time. First, take a few minutes at the start of each day to identify the gaps in your schedule. Write what you want to accomplish in each gap into your calendar, anything from a lower value work, such as expense reports, to larger tasks you've been dreading, such as outlining your presentation, to creative work you want to reflect on later. And, at the end of the day, look back at your 30-minute tasks and note which ones you've accomplished. A couple of thoughts there on being more productive. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Particularly, we've looked at the business interruption insurance, which is obviously topical at the moment. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to have a longer session on innovation with Christina Sikiotis and look at some of those case studies from her recent trip, plus some other business and legal tips that will affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week and, as Helen Keller once said, no pessimist ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed to an uncharted land or opened a new doorway for the human spirit.